There was the press, there was Amy, and then there was the public. And it was a truly parasitical relationship all round, for all three parties. He went home that night, wrote the piano chords to the song Back to Black, came back in the next day, and they just went from there. But apparently there was a real family feel to the place. You'd walk in, the Mighty Boosh would be in one corner, a Libertine or two at the bar, Amy Winehouse would be pulling pints. Welcome back to Death with the Record. This week we are looking at Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. To kick things off, as we usually do, we're going to have a look at the year in music, which is 2006. Just a hint before we get there. Not looking good, guys. It's really not looking good, 2006. Um, after that, we'll try and come up with a Rakeem lyric that sums up the year in music to us, which I, in this case, again, produces some interesting uh, lyrics from us. Um, so I guess without further ado, Ollie, do you want to take it away? 2006, yeah, what was it let's saying? let's go, man. Uh, well, as you mentioned, a year probably marked by inconsistency. Yeah. Uh, more than anything else. Lily Allen brought out her debut All Right Still, which I was listening Amazing. to in the car the other day and definitely still bangs. Uh, but I think if you look kind of beyond her, there isn't really that much going on. Uh, most of the big singles and big albums were basically James Morrison, McFly, oh. and then oh. two or three X Factor candidates because this was the year that Chico Time went to number one. Bloody hell. Not very good indeed. Oh, God. I think, no. yeah, maybe maybe the best example, if you're thinking about a general decline in quality, Robbie Williams, at least to you and I, general cornerstone of, you know, decent pop music, brought, out, brought out Rude Box, which was widely panned and people reckon it's probably his worst ever album. So, yeah. I'm up. I'm absolutely aghast that you're not defending Robbie Williams on that front. <laughs> I thought that, that's exactly the kind of album I thought you'd love, like, not, unconditionally. Not, not Rude Box, mate. Um, Not Rebox, fair enough. Yeah, the bigger, the bigger story perhaps, and depending on how you look at it, 2006 was basically either the golden era or the nadir of indie pop and indie rock. Mm. So there were, you know, there were a couple of decent bands that I used to listen to back in the day, like Arctic Monkeys' debut, um, Kasabian brought out Empire, but then you're looking at the likes of, you know, Muse, Razorlight, Fratellis, The Kooks, Snow Patrol, Kaiser Chiefs. Oh. The Wombats, all these bands that were really active and like releasing music around this time. Um, Honestly, I, I can't believe that there was a point in time where like the pinnacle of British indie music was Razorlight and the I song know. America. It's just absolutely terrible. It's crazy. It's crazy though because some of these some of these groups still have a career. Like I, I went to Glastonbury last year and it was maybe two p.m. on a Friday, and we were kind of we were probably a few stellars deep. And we're thinking, yeah. right, what what can we go see? And so one of our friends said, oh, uh, the Wombats are playing on the other stage, which is like the second biggest stage there. And we're like, oh, we'll, we'll, go, yeah. we'll go have a measle, just go have a little look, see what's going on. Mm. The place was absolutely rammed at two o'clock in the afternoon, and I couldn't believe it. What were it. the demographics of these people like who were there to see him? I guess they probably would have been maybe similar. I mean, festivals are oh, fairly right. youngish places anyway, aren't they? But yeah. yeah, everyone looked kind of our age. You could tell that everybody was kind of there for the nostalgia. No one was really asked when the front man was like, yeah, this is one of our new ones. Everyone's like, oh, oh God, who, yeah, who like, bloody what? cares about that? Wombats is the ultimate band of when they say, let's play some new material. Like, no, please, <laughs> like, let's walk not. away. But yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a fun afternoon to be fair. But yeah, then um, I guess one of the sadder news stories of 2006 was the passing of Jay Diller. 
Donuts and The Shining were then released posthumously that year. He didn't obviously really need any other music to cement his legacy in hip hop, but you know, those are two masterpieces. I know you and I, Jamie, have been thinking about covering one of those in a future episode. So if people have, you know, a favorite or a preference, definitely comment, give us a shout, let us know. I think in the electronic world, it would probably be good to mention Burial brought out his debut album, which maybe wasn't quite as good as 2007's Untrue, but definitely mm. still signposted a major talent. And then last but not least, I'm pretty sure that Grizzly Bear brought out a second album. Is it Yellow House? Which I think yeah. you're, you're definitely a fan of that, aren't you? Yeah, great, great record. But yeah, that's, that's basically about it for 2006. Very hit and miss. Um, but 27th of October saw the release of Amy Winehouse's Back to Black, and that's where my inspiration for this week's lyric came from. So okay, go on. I'm trying to focus on the media and paparazzi attention that she had in her life and how this hampered her career. So I've gone for a Rakeem lyric from the song It's Been a Long Time. So are you ready? Okay. I'm, I'm so ready. Right. It goes... When I'm out popping, either hanging or shopping, people see me stop and ask me when the album dropping. The wait is over. Information like a soldier, like I told you, greater, stronger, not at all. Yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I can already probably tell you that I think you've won this Rakeem lyric battle because mine is, I've gone a completely different route, which is like not even remotely as like penetrating when it comes to Amy Winehouse's career or the year. You know, you were mentioning the Wombats earlier. So. Yeah. Obviously, a band that were probably reached their pinnacle in, in 2006. I remember them very well because at that time, I think I was about 13 or 14, um, or maybe maybe younger, maybe older. I can't remember exactly. You know, when you're that age and you were kind of talking to you know someone that you were perhaps trying to you know develop a romantic relationship with at that age, you'd just be on MSN or Facebook oh, chat yeah. every night. You get home days. like the MSN messages pinging up, and you're like, you're, <laughs> the serotonin is going through the roof. Um, at this point, this person I was trying to talk to. Her cover photo, I think, on Facebook was her with the wombats. So it was like all three of them with like their arms around her and like her in the middle. And I remember at the time just being like, fucking wombats, man. Like, God, God damn, like, as if they've got getting a picture a of her. I was getting super jealous. So the lyric I picked from Rakeem is basically directed, you know, at the wombats and at this old flame. It was, um, to quote, it's from Eric B. as president. First you said, all you want is love and affection. Let me be your angel and I'll be your protection. Take so that shows out to my year nine love interest. Ditch the wombats, <laughs> come home. Like, please, I've, I'm still here. So yeah, that, I mean, I think- That was a tender safe, moment, mate. It was a tender moment. I think it's also safe to say that maybe you won the Rakeem battle this week. Yeah, I don't know. I'll what take that, I'll take that. All right, well, I'll take this opportunity to say, please go and follow us on Instagram, at Death of the Record. Click that subscribe button if you're listening on YouTube or if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, moving swiftly on, Ollie, I have a question for you and it will make sense in a second. What were you doing at age 17 with your life? Like, give me an insight into day-to-day -day life, age um, 17 for Ollie. Trying to, trying to perfect my parallel park. Um, <laughs> nice. Trying to scrabble around in people in the years above me at school, trying to get a fake ID so I could go out the weekend. Classic. Um, going house parties, doing my AS levels, pretty standard stuff, I'd say. Okay, so yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it, that's quite standard. Um, at 17 years old, Amy Winehouse um, was doing something quite different. So she was the object of a war between A&Rs working for EMI and Island Records. They were both trying to sign her. So she was being developed by her management company, as they say. And she was so hotly tipped as an artist that there were literally injunctions stopping people talking about her to try and keep her, her name secret Bloody until hell. they were really ready to, to push her music. 
So what that made me realise is it's very easy to forget how young some of these people were when they had their break, especially like us, if you were even younger at that time when it happened. But she was only 17, Ollie, like 17. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of them where I don't think you can appreciate how young that is until you're actually at that age. Yeah. I remember when she, I remember when she died, I would have been 16, I think, and... There must have been a lot of talk about how she'd made her breakthrough when she was, you know, twenty-three or something. And I remember thinking, "Oh, that's not, that's not super young." Like, you know, I'm, I'm nearly there. Well, yeah, I think yeah. about that now, me being twenty-four, and I think, "Fucking hell!" Can you imagine having like a number one uh, yeah. album on both sides of the Atlantic and touring everywhere? It'd be, it would be crazy. Yeah, it's like the the it's all relative. And when you're when, as you say, when you get to twenty-four years old, suddenly it starts to become quite depressing how little mm. you've achieved in your life. But, exactly. Anyway, for, for what I feel, I feel like for so long, basically, the discourse around Amy Winehouse has always focused on her drinking, her drug abuse, you know, the mental health issues and body image issues that came later in her career. And the way it's presented, it's almost like, you know, all that stuff was an inevitability. She was always destined to be fucked up. Mm. And it completely ignores the way in which she was seen as an artist before the tabloids really got a hold of her and before Back to Black came out. So, Ollie, do you see something in her, you know, in her image of, in her early career that's different to, to how she ended up being known and considered later on in her career, maybe like post-2006? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the early clips I've seen of gigs or of interviews, one thing that strikes me is just how different her sound is. A lot mm. of it is basically just her singing with a guitar. And to be yeah. completely honest, I wouldn't say I was a massive fan of, you know, the kind of noise she was making. Obviously, I understand that you've got to start from somewhere, you've got to learn your craft. But I think yeah. I definitely think there's something in the fact that she eventually put the guitar down to focus on her voice because that is where the attraction was. When when you heard her singing, even early on, you could tell mm. this is a this is an amazing and undeniable talent. I think it's for me at least it's clear that you know she was always going to be a singer songwriter. Like she was only accompanying herself on guitar because it was like practically necessary. Mm. The guitar was for like writing songs. She wasn't trying to be trying to be Joe Pass. But interesting what you're saying about like she has. Like her singing voice was, you know, the thing. It is, yeah. For me, it's you know, the attraction, yeah. She, she was one of the featured singers in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra at this time. Like she was a very well-established, you know, jazz singer for her age. And it's very telling that in interviews around 2003, around, you know, just before Frank's coming out, she's very, very careful and pointed about telling interviewers that she is a jazz musician. You know, she plays with an all-live band and a record and she is a purist of jazz, um, which I think is maybe not, you know paid enough attention to later in her career I don't know what do you reckon yeah I mean I, as you say I feel like people probably forget about those things because of the controversy that she later went on to kind of uh, attract I guess Be enveloped by yeah yeah one thing that I do believe about her early interviews and when you in, uh, when she's young and speaking about her career looking forward there's such mm. an amazing buzz around her yeah. it's always about the music and the album and the tour and what she's going to do that obviously just kind of completely dissipated as time went on um which is kind of sad looking back really yeah it was really sad because i think at that point in interviews you know that energy um you know she had a reputation for being a bit outspoken but that mm. it was like a, it was a positive reputation you know she was someone who like was, was strident and unafraid would to give you a quote mind. yeah exactly it wasn't like you know what she became to be known as when the tabloids you know ravaged her as you know this gobby person she was just a working class jewish girl from north london who was an amazing musician who was like willing you know she would be herself in interviews and it's it's really sad that that has changed um 
But let, let's move on to the actual album, Back to Black. So the name of the podcast is yeah, Death of the Record. Let's talk about the most important bit, which is the music. So what are the best moments on the album? Are there skippable tracks? How does the experience of listening to it feel as a whole? So to set the scene slightly for Back to Black, um, as we've kind of discussed, around, you know, Amy had released Frank. She was nominated for the Mercury Prize. She was seen as this really talented, authentic jazz singer with a huge amount of buzz around her. She wasn't mainstream by any means, but she was, fair to say, as a recipient of a, a good deal of critical acclaim. So these three years between Frank and Back to Black is where she started to become involved in the indie scene that was burgeoning in, in, in Camden. So obviously for me and you, Ollie, looking back at Camden, it's hard to think of it as being anything but thoroughly, thoroughly uncool. It yes. was kind of hilarious that it was seen as the centre of this thriving music scene. Yeah, because that's the thing, it was the centre. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about bands like the Fratellis and Razorlight and stuff. Camden was the centre of the music world for a while, and the epicentre of that specifically within Camden was a pub called the Holy Arms, if you know it. Um, oh, it's a pub. No, I, I think I've heard her mention it, to be fair. I think I've heard yeah. her mention it. So it's a pub just off Camden High Street. It's up towards the Chalk Farm side of, of Camden. So this is a pub where Liam Gallagher, Kate Moss, Pete Doherty, Noel Fielding all drank. At one point, the Razorlight frontman would come down and because his girlfriend at the time was Kirsten Dunst, she would be there drinking as well. <laughs> it seems absolutely ridiculous, but you know, there were tabloid gossip uh, pages and magazines that re- would report on things like oh, wow, Alex Turner and Kaiser Chiefs were having a drink in, in the Holy Arms the other day, like, which is obscene. But, yeah, you know, everyone wants to know what Ricky Wilson's up to, don't they? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but apparently there was a real family feel to the place. You'd walk in, the Mighty Boosh would be in one corner, a Libertine or two at the bar, Amy Winehouse would be pulling pints, um, whatever. But anyway, so in the 80s or 90s, this pub was a biker's bar, famous for not much else besides the fact there was lots of speed being dealt there. But importantly for this story, the new owners in the 2000s installed a jukebox, and in that jukebox, it was basically full of classic soul, rhythm and blues, funk, and, and 60s kind of girl group pop, which is where Amy came in. So she would go to this pub loads along with the people I've mentioned. She'd occasionally, as I said, get behind the bar and pull pints. She'd play pool, she'd listen to music, and all this time the music was playing bands like the Shangri-Las, the Velvets, the Ronettes, and she would obviously get drunk, and this music would, I suppose, seep into her and, and begin to, to make her feel inspired. It's also important to mention that at this time she met Blake Fielder Civil, and that's where that tortured and drug-fueled romance started. So, Back to Black ended up being composed of two major inspirations. One, her one of her premature endings with, with Blake, and the other one being the music that she was listening to in this pub when she was playing pool. So, Ollie, my question is, obviously this album has the crusty fingerprints of Camden all over it. So having heard that story, can you kind of hear that in her sound? And these days when you walk around Camden, do you ever feel particularly inspired or not? I mean, talking about Camden, I can't say I've been there for a while. My, my main memories of it are just like little um, little tragic kind of vintage shops that are all just selling kind of bright neon clothes. So I'm not... Probably not the best person to speak about that. And little mini pipes and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the music, you can definitely hear the influence of the type of grooves that you were talking about. Mm. Because I think I think Frank, her debut, that can be kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. Like, is it a jazz album? Is it a hip-hop album? There's, there's acoustic moments on it as well. Yeah, yeah. But then with Back to Black, I don't think that's the case at all. It's, it's basically what you are saying, jukebox pop like very mm. 60s kind of heartbreak sound. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of that is undeniably down to the influence of Mark Ronson on this album. So like, obviously mm. this is the record that he kind of made his name on. I feel as though everybody now knows who Mark Ronson is. He's a you know superstar worldwide producer, but it needs to be said that 
when he was working with Amy on this album, that was not the case. He was a pretty much an unknown over in the UK. Mm. He was uh, he was a celebrated and respected underground hip hop DJ in New York, but he was only just kind of getting started on production. And yeah. she she definitely took a chance on him. Mm. Um, and apparently, yeah, she went out to see him in Brooklyn, told him about the kind of album that she wanted to make, influenced by those groups that you just said. Mm. And they kind of just went from there. Apparently, he went home that night wrote the piano chords to the song Back to Black, came back in the next day, and they just went from there. Wow. And, um, wow. Yeah, just wrote half the album in the space of four or five days, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, I think, I can't remember if you mentioned, but she was definitely a jazz purist. She was always about live instrumentation and things of that nature. So it was a masterstroke from Ronson to get the Dap Kings involved, who were basically just like a local funk and soul band. Yeah. And they gave the album that kind of Motown edge that she was after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they, I mean, they played on most of the songs on the record and they were also her backing band when she came to tour around the US. But I, I just find it crazy that they made all this music in the space of four or five days when you think that between Frank and this album there was something like three years. Mm. Like what, what a flurry of creativity. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I guess it was all being stored up in these kind of these lock-ins at the, all the mm. arms, and you know, and all that music and energy and the heartbreak with with Blake is all fed into this album. And I think the intensity of this album is definitely reflected in in that. You can you can almost tell, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, that these were like songs written in like a couple of weeks in this particular time, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say it's a breakneck record because that kind of implies that it's rushed. Mm. But the whole thing is under 35 minutes. Like the longest song is four minutes, 17 seconds or something. Yeah. Which is, you know, really, really concise. And I mean, I think spe- that- especially compared with Frank, right? Because Frank is about 55 minutes long, something like that. Yeah, it's quite yeah. a, it's a meandering, meandering. Yeah, it's yeah. like a jazz, it's basically like a, you know, meandering jazz record. And this is super, super taut compared to that. Yeah. I mean, the other producer on the record who we should definitely give a shout out to Mm. uh, was Salam Remy, who was the guy that produced the majority of Frank. And, you know, nowadays he probably isn't as big a name as Ronson, but this guy definitely deserves the utmost respect. He's worked with, you know, a lot of really incredible musicians in America, the likes of Nas and the Fugees. And I also read the other day that he produced the Miss Dynamite debut album, which I think is a masterpiece. And yeah, I mean, his contributions are definitely like slightly different to Ronson's. But I still think they fall into that 60s girl group vibe she was after. And yeah, yeah. He, was, he was based in Miami. So the whole album is basically written in Miami and New York over a few days. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I think for me, what's important, and you kind of touched on it there, that this isn't just a derivative reproduction of 60s girl groups. Obviously, the inspiration was very heavily leaning that way. But I think what sets it apart from being just another album which is ripping off a sound from the past is that her lyrics are arguably like the most entertaining and original thing about her like the astuteness mm-hmm. of her observations because one moment it will be her being really playful and you know irreverent and very sly and knowing and, and using kind of language that is quite colloquial and like she's happy to swear and, and completely be you know she'd always avoid cliche and then the next moment it's like wow that's one of the most painful painfully intense ruminations on like a relationship I've ever heard when she's mm-hmm. talking about Blake and I think that that you know that combination of the playful and the contemporary and, and with that very intense uh, emotional element is for me one of the most important things about the lyrics are what kind of fuckery is this you made me miss the slick
talking about Blake, this this has got me thinking about another story. So, for those of you who don't know, um, Blake went to school with my sister, and he went to school just down the road and to the school Jesus. that quite. The school that quite a few of my friends went to called Bourne Grammar School. And he's basically their number one cultural export. If you go on Wikipedia, kind of notable alumni, he's the top one. But it leads to some pretty awkward situations. So I have a friend who who went to, to Bourne and he ended up going to Durham University. So in first year, I think he was having a conversation and with some of those classic, basically posh Durham twats. And they were talking about all these famous political figures who went to their private schools. And then my mate basically just has to go like, oh yeah, the, the most famous guy who went to my school is... Uh, yeah, Blake Fielder Civil, and they're like, uh, who, "Who's that guy? I, I don't recognise the name." And then he'd be just be like, "Yeah, it's the, it's the guy you know him, the guy who got Amy Winehouse addicted to crack." And that's like the only way you can describe him, and that's it. So shout out to Bourne Grammar School. I would say shout out to Blake, but perhaps not because he's a bit of a, a tortured figure. Yeah, um, they're probably probably not going to have a framed photo of him up in the halls. Are they? Yeah, he's not up in, in like, the, the trophy department. The, the trophy cabinet. <laughs> him just like on a massive detox. Anyway, um, on that note, Ollie, let's talk about the actual tracks. Have you got a couple of yeah, favourites? on the album I think one of my favourites for sure is me and Mrs Jones me and Mr Jones sorry I love that mm. one uh, another one probably be Tears Dry on their own like, I know it's definitely one of the kind of bigger radio hits off the album but I definitely prefer that to kind of like Rehab or Back to Black and stuff like that yeah. I know I had them at my match but every moment we get snatched I don't know why I got so attached it's my responsibility, and you don't own nothing to me, but to walk away, I have no progress Quite a funny story, actually, about that. So that was one of the songs produced by Remy, and uh, I've seen this story with him where he kind of says, well, when I first met Amy, she was really on this big, I'm a jazz singer hype. <laughs> and, um, and apparently Tears Dry was originally a down-tempo song, uh, because mm-hmm. she'd always apparently try and slow things down. But then Remy came across the original instrumental stems for Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, mm. which is an absolute banger, obviously. And yeah, he just heard something and he thought, Do you know what, these two might work together. Uh, and he basically completely changed the song, completely sped it up. And Amy yeah. at first was really, really pissed off with him. And there's loads of <laughs> clips on YouTube of her trying to sing it, but with the speed really struggling to get it out which apparently for her is just you know she could do one take and things done and and she's kind of you know tears dry oh fuck's sake remy and she keeps having like a slab like fuck's sake it's really funny um but yeah the the original version is actually on the posthumous amy winehouse album which is called lioness which yeah. just shows like the complete transformation of the song so yeah big up uh remy uh, salam remy for that one yeah absolutely i think another um, this, well, this is actually a Ronson song, but for me, the the song I think of when I think of the album, and maybe you might, you might be a bit surprised at this, and, or people might, it'll be Wake Up Alone. Just because I think one of the most important things on this album is that it is just full of beautifully written classic pop ballads like as much as it has the studio wizardry and the you know the witty lyrics i think at the heart of it it's like wow this is an amazingly written catchy heartbreaking yeah like pop ballad and on the other side probably my second favorite song on the album is addicted which has the complete other side of her where she's Mm. you know basically a funny catchy song about people being precious about their weed 
And it, it's so it, funny, it, that song. It is, it is. Like, and that's the thing, like, how many artists can you listen to, quote-unquote serious artists can you listen to, where you actually kind of laugh or smile, like, you can't stop yourself smiling during, during the songs. Speaking of Ronson versus Remy, Ollie, would you say you're drawn to one of the other songs over 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 the other, or do um, you kind of not see them as particularly different? I, I mean, I kind of think they're like two sides of the same coin. Ronson's okay. kind of coming at things from this more pop-oriented angle, whereas I think you can hear the reggae influences in what Remy's trying to do. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting that, with the exception of Tears Dry, Ronson produced pretty much all the big radio hits from this album. So. Back to Black, You Know I'm No Good, Rehab, and obviously... Oh, he did, did that other one. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Valerie. Didn't really get much radio time when it came out. Um, very good. Very funny. <laughs> but don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not dissing Ronson, because as you say, I think Wake Up Alone is, is one of his best songs on that album. Mm. But if you had to make me choose, I'm probably going to go with Remy. Um, why, what, what, what are you thinking about that? I mean, I'm not sure I could pick between the two. Like you say, two sides of the same coin is a cliche that actually applies totally in this situation. All right, then. Well, I think I, I could ask you a different question then, because this is something that I don't know. I've been thinking about a little bit. I read something the other day that Back to Black uh, won the Grammy for Best Pop Record of the Year, I think, mm. and because of the production split of the album on the US version, apparently Ronson was the only person that got the reward. So Remy didn't actually get rec- like industry recognition for anything that he'd done on Back to Black, which oh, man. I don't know. I, I mean, I felt kind of tight about that. I feel like he's been such an integral figure in kind of bringing her up mm. from, you know, Rough Diamond with that amazing voice on Frank, where I think he produced some amazing songs like In My Bed, um, Fuck Me Pumps and... Uh, is it just just I can't remember the last one, but help, help yourself help, as well. Help yourself, amazing, yeah, amazing song, amazing. an amazing song. And then to kind of not get the recognition, all anybody does is ever talk about Mark Ronson on this album. Yeah, I, I kind of feel bad for him, man. I mean, I agree, but do you not think that's just Ronson all over? Like, I think part of it is that he was on the cusp of becoming this huge artist in his own right. You know, he essentially became the superstar producer. He released Version the year after this, right? Mm. So it's natural, I think, that people were drawn to him and drawn to the songs on his, which were, as you say, generally the bigger singles. Mm. And it's just, he's had this his whole career, and he has it even more now. It's so weird to me. Like, whatever producer is heralded in the way that Mark Ronson is, like, Uptown Funk is a Bruno Mars song, except it's Bruno Mars' feet... Mark Ronson, but he's yeah, the producer. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what other fucking producer has like a feat in these? It's so weird. Like, how is he? Why does he always insist on thrusting himself into the spotlight? Like, maybe you can tell that neither of us particularly like Mark Ronson, <laughs> but it's so bizarre. Like, Com- compare that with, uh, I, actually, I watched an interview with Salam Remy the other day where mm. the interviewer is like really trying to push this angle that um, he should feel bitter about the fact he didn't get the Grammy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Remy. For like for those who don't know, he's just like this kind of large, like he looks like a friendly guy. Like from yeah. the relationship with Amy, you can tell that it's always just about the music and about her being happy. And he kind of says something like, um, "Look, man, like if winning awards is how you judge your career, then you know, fair enough. But that has never ever been what I'm about. Like I made some amazing music with Amy that I'm incredibly proud of, and for me, that's all that matters. And you know, sometimes people say that, and you kind of still think it's yeah like, oh, but you've got you've got to be pretty pissed yeah. with him it's just so genuine 
And yeah. I, I just really, really like the guy. <laughs> okay, I mean, I agree. And you take that and then you compare it with... Have you seen the Mark Ronson uh, MTV Cribs kind of edition? It's not MTV Cribs, oh but it's an equivalent God, of that. No. I what, think it's Variety. That? Yeah, well, what, first of all, I think he has some terrible taste in home furnishings. But the other thing is, it's just I think there's one moment, and maybe I'm misremembering this because my kind of feelings about him are in, in, infecting it, but I'm pretty sure he has like a a big display of all his Grammys and he's exactly the kind of guy who's probably like you know Uptown Funk uh, won Grammy for best song or whatever like that so yeah I got this green silky wallpaper and then ended up painting the ceiling green to match it these are like sports trophies but for music it's always like a bit of a thing like okay how obnoxious is it to like flex I don't want to put them too much in an obvious place yet I am proud of them and I might need to impress people when they come to my house every now and then Fuck Mark Ronson, moving on to the next category, Apex. Right, so let's pretend for a second Amy's career is laid out before us. It's a landscape. We have all the peaks and troughs there. We can see them all. Um, basically, where does this album fall? Is it a peak? Is it the apex? Or is it kind of more towards sea level? In other words, is it her best album? So, of course, Amy only released two albums in the 10 or so years she was alive uh, and active as a musician. And those are Frank and Back to Black. The other substantial release, you mentioned it briefly earlier, is Lioness Hidden Treasures, which is a mm. compilation album released posthumously in 2011. Um, it's worth noting that that album is not in any way intended to represent the follow-up album she had planned prior to, to her death. Um, instead, the album was created by Mike Ronson and Salam Remy. They went through lots of recordings, uh, of thousands of hours of recordings of, of Amy, and put together this album of four previously unreleased songs, some covers, and some alternate takes. And personally, I think it's like a rewarding listen if you're a big Amy fan. Yeah. But what, what's your opinion on the album, Molly? Should it be considered in the Apex conversation or, or not? I mean, I don't. I personally don't think we should be considering it in the Apex, but I would definitely recommend people go and listen to the record. Like, I think there's some mm. really decent alternate versions. Like the Valerie version on that album, I prefer like a million times to the one that I heard <laughs> like on the charts when I was growing up. Yeah. And there's the, the collaboration with Nas... Uh, is it Like Smoke? I think I love yeah. that song, man. Like, mm. it's, a, it's amazing to me that Nas can put out album after album of absolute shit. And then, it, and then <laughs> the two songs that Whoa. he just, that, well, compared to Illmatic, like, I think we can yeah, agree yeah. most of his, like, sure, middle sure, career sure. is not good. Yeah, yeah. But then on that song, he absolutely kills it. And I'm just like, what, where have you been, man? Like, what have you been doing? I feel triumphant, no strings, just a fling to have fun with. I'll be out in London, Camden, hunting for the answers. Why did God take away the homie? I can't stand it. I'm a firm believer that we all meet up in eternity. Just the he's been making the masterpiece that is still Matic, mate. That's what he's been doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're yeah, right, they're like. In, in conclusion, big up Lioness. Definitely listen to it, but we shouldn't be considering it for Apex. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as you say, not to, to uh, kind of shove the point down too hard but like the collaboration with Tony Bennett some of the original unreleased original songs are, mm. are all really really lovely and I think the the important thing as well is that it's done with dignity it's not her estate just releasing about 10 posthumous albums like they did with yeah. Tupac just to try and like ratchet in the money as, as much as they could that's the thing I mean I feel it's such a it's such a grey area when you're dealing with a deceased artist but if there mm. were two people that you would want in charge of that project then it's going to be Mark Ronson and Salam Remy, two people that have spent you know more time with her in the studio than anybody else, people that she trusted, um, mm. and you know I think that's that's the kind of posthumous release that I can get on board with because you know there have been other attempts you know since she passed the kind of profit off her estate like there was that hologram 
tour um, a few yeah. years back. Do you remember? Do you remember that? And I just thought that, yeah, that so seemed wrong. So for people who, who aren't aware of this, Mitch, her, her father, who's kind of a, I mean, I would think it's fair to say he's a contemptible figure. Mm. He um, worked with a company called Base Hologram, the company that did the, the two-pack uh, hologram. And the idea was to do a world tour, like a two or three year long world tour with Amy as a hologram performing all her music. And Mitch is quoted as saying it's like a chance to show the real Amy through hologram. But obviously it's just, a, it, it screamed of a money grabbing um, mm. ploy. There was loads of controversy around it. There was actresses who were, told they were auditioning for a, a biopic about Amy and in reality they were auditioning to be the body double of, of Amy for the for the hologram. It was just generally shady, horrible stuff. So yeah, for the purposes of this discussion, there are only two albums we can consider, Frank or, or Back to Black. Ollie, I don't think this is really needs to be a long conversation. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, don't get me wrong, I really like Frank and I actually think if I had to pick my favourite Amy Winehouse song, I'm going with Help Yourself. I think that is... I think that song is amazing, but yeah, I can't argue that Frank is a better album. Back to Black is more consistent, and that is a Ray Pax, and I think I think we probably agree on that. Yeah, I think it's a rare album, and you touched on this, it had multiple huge hits, but it was also still adored by jazz purists yeah. in equal measure, and how many albums do you get where those two things collide? It's more consistent, and, and for me, it's, it's a Ray Pax. Yeah, you spot on that. Yeah. All right. Well, how about this? We'll open it up to debate as well. Let us know what you think. Comment down below if you're on, your, or if you're on YouTube or, or DM us on, on Instagram. Which album do you prefer? I think you can make an argument that Frank is is an enjoyable record in its own right. But what is her apex? That is the question we want to know from you guys. Moving on to alternate cuts, our next segment. So this is a segment where we try and engage with some of the major criticisms that surround the artist and reflect a bit on how our enjoyment might be affected. We'll throw out our alternate cuts or thoughts about the album and how it relates to, to wider culture. Ollie, you've got something to say here about Mark Ronson again, unsurprisingly. <laughs> that man again, he's popping up. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's that... shoving himself into limelight, as per usual. <laughs> well, no, I, um, so I read, I read an obituary that he wrote after Amy had passed, and there was just you know a couple of sentences that I, I fancied reading out just to see if we could maybe talk them through a little bit. So right. yeah, he's talking here about time that Amy spent in a health clinic in North London. This wasn't strictly rehab, but it was basically a kind of, I don't want to use the word detox clinic, but that might be the best to describe it. Somewhere she could go for a few days and get off alcohol and drugs. So he said, looking back on it now, it's obvious to me that the main reason I enjoyed spending time with Amy in that clinic was because it was so full of hope. In my mind thinking, great, she's sober and this time it's for good. This is how it's always going to be, just like when we met. It was an incredibly naive and somewhat selfish dream, which removed anything she was going through emotionally and physically from the scenario. Nevertheless, it was a dream I would happily buy into each time she checked herself in there. So, I mean, I know, I know we've been digging out Mark Ronson a little bit, but I actually think that's <laughs> probably catching him at one of his more self-aware moments. <laughs> yeah. But I, I still think that it highlights the fact that Amy Winehouse was and is a figure that people endlessly project their own lives, their own th- hopes, their own thoughts onto. Um, she's she's not the only person that people do this to, because there are others, other figures, you know, who have died young or those who take a break from releasing music for you know personal tragedy. But mm. I don't know. I I feel like when she's brought up in conversation, so much of it is steered towards oh, you know, I wish she'd got better. Like think of all the music she could have made. And this idea mm. of like wasted talent or lost time. And I just, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I, it kind of posits her experience and misfortune as this kind of inconvenience and that her death was just like a kind of irritating sad note to all these amazing albums that she would have ended up releasing. 
Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because I find the projection goes one of two ways. So it's either what you describe where it's like, as you say, it's just, oh, a mild inconvenience. Think of all the tours she could have done, all the money and all the good art that I could have, you know, been um, subjected to if, if she'd lived. Or it's the complete inverse where it's like everything that ever happened in our life is only in the shadow of her depression and her death. Mm. And I think if you, you can see this, if you go on YouTube videos of, of her playing live in, you know, even like 2005, for example, so... Or maybe even earlier, 2004, before let's say the paparazzi and the drugs have really, really taken hold, all the comments are like, oh wow, such a beautiful voice. But if you look at her eyes, they're, they're so distant and lost. And it's like, no, like stop yeah. with the projection. It doesn't have to be that every moment of her waking life is in the shadow of the fact that she died. Like, not every moment she was depressed, not every moment in her life she was on drugs. Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be one of two ways. It doesn't have to be, oh, why couldn't she get clean? I'm missing out on music. And it doesn't have to be, oh, wow, all her life was a tragedy. She was a person, and it really it dehumanizes her, I think, yeah. when people focus on one or one or the other. The, one, the other thing I wanted to say that I think I, I notice a lot, and I th- it's, it's kind of quite troubling and al- almost ironic, is that the catalyst for all this stuff happening was the fact that her global hit was Rehab. Like, this song, which she basically defiantly talks about refusing to go to rehab, uh, and that became her like unique selling point. So suddenly Amy mm. Winehouse was this person who... I'll never go to rehab. I'm devoted to excess. And from that point on, like the, the narrative around her was she's a druggie. She gets fucked up. She doesn't care. She loves excess. And all the complexity and ambiguity of her personality was was completely taken out of it. What I would say that this relationship she had with the press and the paparazzi that we've, we've talked about, it wasn't a two-way relationship. It had three parts. There was the press, there was Amy, and then there was the public. And it was a truly parasitical relationship all round for all three parties. They relied, the papers, they relied on us as much as her for their existence. You know, she provided mm-hmm. the fodder for the newspapers and we were the basically the fools who, who bought it. And, you know, they had, she had press outside her house 24-7. There were paps referring to us, the Pied Piper of Camden, uh, stuff like that. And I think, as we talked about, individuals projecting her onto her what they want is one thing, yes. But it wasn't just the press, it wasn't just the tabloids, it wasn't just the gossip mags and the Daily Mail and the Mirror and all that kind of shit. It was mainstream media too. If you look in the documentary, there's moments with Graham Norton, Jay Leno, Frankie Boyle, Simon Amstel, all treating her as like a punchline. She's basically everyone's favourite punch bag. Now, are you familiar with Amy Winehouse? Uh, Not really. No. Amy Winehouse, well, what is, uh, you know YouTube, the thing on the computer, YouTube, yeah? Well... She put some footage up there. Now, Amy Winehouse, um, she's like a a mad person. (laughs) She was playing... Did you see Amy Winehouse in the paper this week? My God! She looks like a campaign poster for neglected horses. (laughs) And I think one of the reasons, and maybe you'll agree with me, Ollie, or maybe you won't, one of the reasons people were so collectively devastated by her death is because it held a mirror up to our relationship with her yeah. and our relationship with the press. Like we were complicit in that. We want we are not above it. Me and you personally, Ollie, either. And I think maybe our sadness at her death is a bit tinged with with guilt. Yeah, I mean, I so I watched the documentary, the Asif Kapadia documentary, when it came out in the cinema, and I remember leaving that day and thinking, "Wow, that was a piece of cinema that basically holds a mirror up to the press." And then when I rewatched it this week, I felt, wow, that's a piece of film that holds a mirror up to us as society, exactly what you were just saying. Because um, mm. it, wasn't, it wasn't just them. We're the ones that fuel it. It's so interesting, man. I think, I think the Frankie Boyle bit, 
because he's he's basically like reinvented himself as this kind as a of woke woke spokesperson. Yeah, and it's I bizarre. would love to know what he thinks about making those comments now. Um, I because yeah, that was one of the bits that shocked me because in you know in the last few years his kind of public persona has gone from mm. will say absolutely anything to you know this kind of like liberal woke uh, spokesperson. Well, you have um, this. I mean, like, because you expect it from Jay Leno, right? Like, no one gives a. Jay Leno's a twat. Like, yeah, even though, even though she went on his show and know, like, performed oh. really well, it's like, come on, like, fuck, fuck that guy. But like Graham Norton as well. Like Graham Norton is this kind of national treasure, mm. right? And it's like, oh wow, how could you hate Graham Norton? Like, even if you're not into like late night TV, he does such an amazing job of getting all the celebrities. Like, even he was taking shots. That's what I mean. Like, all of us were complicit. It wasn't just the rags. It was speaking about the documentary because you're saying that it, you felt they held up a mirror to mm. to all of us. I'm not so sure, man. Like, for example, I'm speaking of, thinking of a couple of specific moments. The moment where they show the body, her body bag being yeah. carried out of her house. We're watching a dead. We're watching a dead body of someone being carried to an ambulance. Is that appropriate? Is that holding up a mirror, or is that not just not just indulging in exactly the same thing that the press and we did? I, I don't think it. I don't think that was a like justified in, in the film yeah, personally. I, I'd say there are like three or four moments in the film that are really borderline. There's that moment. There's a moment when she's at Bestival, if you remember, and she's, oh mate, she's skeletal and holding a drink. And you know, the idea is that she's been pushed to this point. And I remember thinking like, fucking hell, like this is really difficult to watch. But I think, mm-hmm. I think part of it has to be the kind of shock factor of this is what the press does. Like fair, fair enough, she had her own problems, but she's been driven to this mm. point by society. I can I can completely understand what you're saying that it is, you know, maybe it is too far. I'd side on, I'd give them the benefit of the doubt, but I can see why people would, you know, be pissed off. I just think it's such a fine line between the doc paying homage yeah. to her talent or paying homage to her fame. And I think that the doc does not focus enough on her talent. Like there isn't kind of moments where, because her downfall will be even more tragic and even more powerful as a message mm. if we got to see more of her being this incredible talent. And there's people who work with her in uh, in Remy's studio in in Miami who said that they were interviewed for the film, but they're not going to watch it and their part isn't put in the film because they wanted to mm. talk about her talent. They didn't want to talk about her fame and all the, the tabloid stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, the thing you've got to remember. It is, it is the director's, you know, it's his, it's his version of what happened. Mm. So you obviously just got to bear that in mind. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Should we move on to the final segment, album cover, nightclub? Yeah, let's do it. Nice one, man. Um, so yeah, as always, we end the podcast by imagining a situation where the record's cover is trying to get into a nightclub and Jamie and I <laughs> are the bouncers. So the artwork you know, isn't being judged on the ID that it has, but a few different criteria. Aesthetics, originality, harmony between music and artwork, and whether or not it could be considered iconic. So just to remind you all, there's four ranks. GOAT, highest level Hall of Fame, VIP, ticket on the door, and name's not down, you're not coming in. So yeah, Jamie and I have seen Amy join in the back of the queue. I'm <laughs> going to give a little bit of the backstory into the cover for album um, for Back to Black, and then we can have a little discussion. So yeah, the mm. photo was taken by a photographer called Misha Richter, and there's actually quite an interesting interview on the Guardian website where he explains how he and Amy met and the day of the shoot. So I don't want to rehash the the article completely, but it is worth a read if you're interested. Mm. And yeah, basically it just seemed like a fairly standard story. Photographer put in touch with the artist via the record label 
Um, she came down to his house, but she'd been at a wedding the night before and was four hours late for the shoot and having not slept, which, you know, yeah. seems fairly par for the course. Maybe <laughs> one of the most interesting things is she told Richter that she wanted to have a friend stand near the lens so that she had somebody to look at. But he was quite adamant that that wasn't going to happen. He kind of wanted yeah. her to look straight at the camera. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I definitely think you can see a little bit of that vulnerability maybe in the picture. Um, yeah. What are you? What are your immediate thoughts, Jamie? Do you think it's? Do you think it's getting in? Well, I'm. I'm just going to bring this conversation back to square one. So, for some context for the people out there, for our audience, in preparation for this segment last week, Ollie messaged me saying something along the lines of like, "Yeah, mate, shouldn't need to spend too long on the album cover. It's a bit shit, isn't it? Like, no way it's getting into the club. Like, we're oh, not you're, letting you're that, digging we're, me out here, mate. We're not letting that fucking shit fucking in. And I, he said it with a tone that I've just tried to reproduce there. And the tone suggested that like, I would instantly agree, and then we pr- proceed to engage in a little circle joke about how we're so cool compared to this album cover or whatever. Anyway, to cut a long story short, as you can probably tell, we disagreed and we spent the past five days or so arguing about it. So I wanted to launch a defense of this album cover based on your description of it just there. All right, so think right. of this as like kind of a closing statement to the jury, like the, to the jury, sorry, like a procedural court drama. So this so is Ollie, Atticus. You suggested, Killer right, that it was. This. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't want to put quite as much gravitas on it, but I'm like, right, okay. wait and see, wait and see. <laughs> so anyway, Ollie, you suggested it was a bad cover. It, it was unimaginative. It was boring. It's just like a photo of Amy with a name. Like, it hasn't got enough trippy graphics or whatever you like, look oh, for in an album cover. I don't know. Um, so let me just explain what I see in this in this artwork. So as we discussed earlier on this podcast, like this album is very much indebted to the '60s girl groups that you know, like the Shangri-Las and the Ronettes, whoever else. If you look at their album covers, they are almost exclusively. Uh, a portrait of the artist on the front. It's a classic trope of that genre. It's a classic trope of the jazz and soul and R&B genres as well that she was influenced by. So the photo of her on the front is clearly a homage to that idea. So firstly, harmony between music and artwork, 10 out of 10. Moving on, next, the iconic factor. So given Amy's musical career, right, it's completely tied to her to her celebrity, whether you like that or not, and her sense of style, you know, the clothes, the tattoos, the beehive haircut, it makes complete sense that the cover would focus on her and her iconic image. And it makes sense that in turn, as time passes, that portrait itself will become iconic. And certainly when I think of Amy, I think of that image of her looking elegant, looking maybe, as you say, slightly vulnerable, but that photo for me sums up Amy. For you maybe, Ollie, it might be some of the grim paparazzi photos out there. I'm not sure what your, what your preference is on this front. I will allow you the font, which I personally like, but can understand some objections to. But as a whole, I think this album is iconic. The album cover story is iconic. It's conceptually rich. It belongs in the VIP section of this club. I'm almost tempted to say goat, but I won't oh seek that out. I won't, I won't say that because I always seek common ground with everyone I meet. So, judge, jury, I rest my case. This is a great album cover and it's worthy of frame posters around all the kind of student digs in the, in the country. Yeah, what do you have to say to that? Right. My problem with this goes back to the time that the album was released. As we've mentioned in the intro, there was a lot of crap in the charts. When I listened to stuff like Valerie and Rehab the first time, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. So I definitely didn't like it the millionth time that I'd heard it. In my head, I kind of dismissed the record and I associated it with all the rubbish that came out at the time, which is wrong. But I'm So you're a snob is what you're saying. (laughs) Which is wrong, but I'm admitting that it happened. I also did the same with the cover. I don't know what it is. 
around that time, there were so many albums which were doing the same thing, just like boring portraits where the person looked kind of nice and that was apparently good enough. Yeah, but they're not iconic. Like, whoa, I don't care whoa, about, I don't care about Duffy's. I don't care about Duffy's like album cover because Duffy is not Amy Winehouse. What I'm saying though, what I'm saying is, Amy's right. is the best of a bad bunch. And when you compare this to some of the other portraits of that time, you can see that the photographer did a good job. But it's not VIP, lad. It can't what be. What are you on about? The originality is probably minus 10 if you're yeah, giving... Yeah, but it doesn't have to be... If it's iconic and it's the whole idea is that it isn't original, it's deliberately a pastiche of a genre that she was influenced by. It's getting VIP. All right then, lad. I'll I'll give I'll, I'll give you this one. You may have won this battle, but you're not going to win the war. Get fucking Atticus, mate. There you go. Right. Well, I mean, I rest my case, Judge Jury. You can make that decision. Um, if in fact, yeah. How about this? At Diff for the record. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, or in the comments. Yeah. If let you've us made know, because who is right about this album to, cover? Everybody agrees with me. Who last, the so... fuck have you who have you spoken to about this, mate? I look, whatever. But let's leave that to the comments. I'm even gonna, I'm going to put a poll out on every single social media. I'm going to put a poll out on this YouTube video and on the, the Spotify if that's even possible. Probably not. Although the way the Spotify is going, they'll probably add that as a feature in the next week. Whatever. This is being settled by our audience. I've put my case forward. You've put your case forward. You know, let let it let that be it. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll let the public decide, love. All right, well, on that, on that, I was about to say on that bombshell, but I'm not ever fucking being the kind of person who quotes Jeremy Clarkson, so I'm not saying that. On that note, that is the end of the episode on Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, a fantastic album and a, a fantastic artist that we have uh, perhaps behaved callously towards in the past five minutes. Um, but yeah, see you next week, guys. Thank you.